and turn to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Today, we're going to look at the story of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, followed by his betrayal and arrest. But before, before we get to the text, I'd like to just talk for a few minutes about how we think about stories. How you especially think about people who report to us things that happened in the past. People write history because they're trying to tell us what, what happened, what happened in the past. But if you've ever tried to tell a story, you can't include everything in the story. You have to pick and choose. And so the writer picks and chooses what aspects, what details he's going to tell about what happened in the past. And he chooses things to leave out. This happens in every historical account. But what he wants to do is he wants to leave us with a sense of what's important to know about this story. I want to give you an example of this. I think that'll illustrate more what I'm trying to say. A couple years ago, uh, middle of the pandemic, there was a bicycle race at Black Hills Regional Park. And so I went and watched the race. So if I want to tell you a story about the race, what should I tell you about it? I could describe what the peloton looked like and sounded like as they whizzed by, packed together at 30 miles an hour. I could have described the beauty of a sun-drenched day and the festive feel of the crowd. I could describe the people who supported the racers with needed repairs and supplies of food and water. I could do research about the race and about the racers and find out if some of them are hoping to be professional someday and maybe I'll find out that some of them actually were disqualified from the race last year because even though they placed in the top three, they cheated. I could include all kinds of different details. When you finish my story, depending on what I describe, you might conclude that a bicycle race is a contest of great stamina and beauty and you might want to go to a race. Or if I spend most of my story on the history of cheating in bicycle racing, you might conclude that bicycle racing is an extremely corrupt sport and stay away. What if I was writing a story and it was just to give the history of this race and describe this race to people who are actually bicycle racers? Well, then I'd probably include a lot of details about strategy and, and how they approach the race and what the course was like. So how we tell stories differs depending, even though we're telling something about the past and everything we're saying, we're seeking to say is true, how we do it is going to vary. You have to include some things and not others. One of my teachers who taught me many years ago how to interpret the Bible said that we can look at the Bible's historical narratives in three ways. Now, I found this super helpful, and I'm hoping as I give it to you, you're going to find it helpful. First, we can look at the description of what happened through a window. 
Okay, we're looking through a window to see what happened back then. But then he said we can look at the, the description as a picture. So the writer is painting a picture and including some details, excluding others, so that we'll get an impression of what it was like and what was important that happened back then. So we're looking at the history through a window and we're looking at the history as a picture. And then the last thing he said is the Bible wants us to look at the text of the story as a mirror. A mirror. What do I look like as I look through the window and as I study the picture? So today, we're going to look at the story of Jesus' prayer in the garden, and then we're going to look at his arrest. We'll look through the window of what happened, and then we'll consider the picture of what Matthew wants us to see, and finally, we'll look in the mirror to see ourselves in light of the story. And there's lots of biblical precedent for all of this. James says in his letter that if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. So we read the Bible to see God and what God did back then. We read the Bible to see what kind of a world God wants us to see as we look at these things and we read the Bible to see ourselves. So we're going to look now at Matthew's story about Jesus in chapter 26 and may the Spirit of God give us insight into what happened and what we need to see and how we're to live in light of this. In fact, let's, let's pray for God to open our hearts and our eyes. Lord, our prayer as we read this text is that we would see your Son, Jesus. As I labor to teach, Lord, and as my dear friends here labor to listen, I pray that we get beyond that to seeing Jesus Christ and that you would fill our hearts with wonder and amazement and love for who Jesus is and for what he's done and what he's done for us. So come now, Spirit of grace, and teach us. We ask you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, window number one. Jesus and his disciples make commitments to each other. Let's look through the window. Verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, 
before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. The story begins with Jesus in a banquet room in Jerusalem where he and his disciples celebrated the Passover together. This traditional meal always ended with a song. A great way to end a dinner. And they would sing hymns from the Psalms ending with Psalm 118. After they sang, they left the room and Jesus led them out of the city of Jerusalem through a gate in the eastern wall down into a valley called the Kidron Valley and then climbed immediately up another mountain path to a mountain road to the top of what was called the Mount of Olives. So as they're walking along the way, Jesus tells them, that they will all abandon him because of what is about to happen to him. It's going to happen that very night. He tells them that the prophet Zechariah prophesied their abandonment. God speaks in Zechariah 13 of his shepherd king. Let me quote from it. The man who stands next to me. So the Lord has this man who is his king who is standing for God and next to God. And God commands that this shepherd of God's people be struck with the sword. And as a result, as Jesus prophesied, this shepherd, the shepherd's sheep will be scattered. This sounds really bad. But then Jesus makes a promise. But after... After I'm struck, after you scatter, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus' message to them is, you're going to abandon me. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. And I'm going to gather you again in Galilee. Jesus makes a commitment. Though they scatter, he will gather them again. Peter will have none of this prediction of his failure. And so he makes a bold statement. All these guys might fall away, not me. I will never abandon you, Jesus. And Jesus' response to him had to be unnerving. Before dawn, before you hear the rooster crow announcing the coming of dawn, Peter, you will have denied me three times. That word deny, it means a failure to acknowledge. You distance yourself. I don't know about this thing. I deny it. Peter, <laughs> and listen, you've got to give this guy credit, some credit. He doubles down. He says, even if it means my death, I will never deny you. And the end of verse 35 is telling. Because Peter was just leading the rest of them. It says, all the disciples said the same. They all insisted they would be loyal to Jesus no matter the cost. When they get to the top of this small mountain, they enter a garden. Probably an olive grove with an olive press for making oil, excuse me, in it. 
And there we look through a second window. So the first window, the first window we see, how did I put it? Jesus and his disciples making commitments to each other. The second window, Jesus prays while his disciples sleep. Look at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you, that you is in the plural, by the way, could you three not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So they enter this garden. Gethsemane means uh, a place of a wine press. So there's probably olive trees all around. It appears to be a place they went to regularly. So Jesus instructs the 11 disciples to sit down. But then he asked Peter and the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, to go further into the garden with him. And here Jesus begins to experience deep emotion. He is sorrowful and troubled. He was experiencing deep grief and was deeply distressed. His heart was being stressed to an unimaginable degree. He knows what's coming. Remember, he's a man, but he's called to suffer for all of God's people. Even though he's just told his companions that he'll rise from the dead, the prospect, think about it, the prospect of what he knows is about to happen is tearing him apart. He tells the three friends that his soul is in such pain that it feels to him as if he's going to die. And so he asks them to stay near him and watch with me. Keep your eyes on me, is all he's asking. We don't know if he had anything specifically for him to watch, you know, watch that there's nobody interrupting me or, uh, 
the text doesn't tell us that. And I, I think the, the most obvious understanding of this is he's saying, I, I just need you guys to be here with me, awake and aware and attentive while I pray. He is so stressed, he falls on his face and he prays, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup he refers to is a very familiar metaphor from the Old Testament. And Matthew expects us to recognize this because his original audience was Jewish and they would know this. It refers to the cup of God's wrath. I don't want to, if it's possible, could I avoid experiencing your wrath for sin? You think about this. Jesus, who planned his entire ministry on earth to end with his death in Jerusalem, who predicted his death at the hands of sinners many times, now asks his father if there is any way he can avoid what he came to do. I, I think this is extraordinary. This is a man in so much pain that he prays to avoid what is about to happen to him, even though what is about to happen is the pivotal event of all of human history. His death and the redemption of the people of God. He feels his weakness deeply. I can't, I can't imagine the stress and sorrow that must have gripped his heart. Nevertheless, he prays, not as I will, but as you will. He's totally submitted to his Father in heaven despite his pain and sense of weakness. Concludes his prayer lying face down on the ground. He gets up, walks the few steps back to Peter, James, and John, and he finds them sound asleep. Speaks to Peter, but as I noted, the you is plural. All three are included. Couldn't you three watch? Couldn't you simply stay with me in this moment for just one late night hour? And then he instructs them. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. The word willing is not just, okay, I'll go along. The word willing is a sense of eagerness. I want to get in on this. These disciples made big commitments. They were eager to remain loyal to Jesus, but in the flesh, in the power of their human nature, they are weak. And so Jesus leaves them again. Again, he asks if there's any possibility that he can avoid the Father's request, that he drink the cup of God's wrath. Again, he prays, my request, my prayer is subject to your will. You can say no. I'll do what you want. Your will be done. He again walks back to join the three disciples, and again, they're asleep. So he goes back and he prays again. Same request. 
Three times he prays, asking God if there is any way he can avoid what he's about to undergo. Three times heaven is silent. The Father's will stands. Jesus is called to suffer and die. Again, he returns to the three, wakes them up. It's not clear whether that sentence is an ironical statement or a question. Whatever it might be, Jesus is showing himself, you can sleep later on, we're going through with this thing. He shows himself resolved to do his Father's will. He now moves in the direction of his betrayal. So we come to the third window. Third window, Jesus is betrayed. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I'll kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And that hour Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then one of the most <laughs> tragic sentences in scripture. Then all the disciples left him and fled. No sooner had Jesus announced his betrayal than Judas shows up leading what we might call a goon squad of temple police officers and other enforcers, and they are armed and they are ready for a fight. Now it's dark, remember? It's dark, there's no electric lights, and there's no photography in that day. So the officers coming to arrest him probably are not totally sure which of the 12 there are Who's the guy? We're only supposed to arrest one. The others we're not interested in. And so there had to be some signal of who to arrest by somebody who knew closely what Jesus looked like, and that was Judas. He'd already agreed to do this. And so he identifies Jesus with the typical greeting of friends in that culture, a kiss. Yes, men kiss each other on the cheek to greet each other. 
both in the ancient world and in some parts of the world today. We're tipped off to a change in Judas' attitude toward Jesus. He calls him rabbi. He calls him teacher. He doesn't call him Lord. doesn't call him master. But Jesus, notice, has not changed toward Judas at all. He calls him, as he once was, friend. We begin to see how transformed Jesus has become from his time of prayer. He takes control of the situation. He's being arrested, and he tells Judas, friend, came what you, do what you came to do. With that, the police officers grab and hold on to Jesus. I'm sure it was quite the scuffle, even though Jesus is just standing there passively. They grab him, likely the way you see the police escort an arrested criminal into jail or into a courtroom. And at this, Peter springs into action. He's acting in keeping with his declaration that he will never fall away from Jesus. Draws a sword and he amputates the ear of the servant of the high priest. Matthew doesn't tell us it's Peter. The other gospel writers do. Mark tells us that Jesus actually heals the guy's ear. Matthew doesn't think those details are important to get the picture we're supposed to see. Think about this though, given the odds, 11 disciples with two swords and a great crowd with swords and clubs, Peter's move was bold and aggressive. Again, Jesus takes leadership. He tells Peter to put away his sword and he explains why. In a sense, he's saying, for those who take the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus' kingdom will not come by violent action. But such violence will only bring violence back on your head. Jesus further tells the disciples that if he wanted, his father would protect him with an army of angels that would dwarf any human force. And he then chides the crowd. This is so interesting. You could have arrested me at any time. You've never seen me with weapons heard me speak of insurrection. What you're doing is fulfilling prophecy of what was spoken about you long ago. Once again, Jesus shows us who's in charge here. The last line of this story is the most tragic. It speaks of Peter and the 10 other disciples who said, this is what they said just moments before, even if I must die, I will not deny you and in that moment they're gone Jesus is alone he's been betrayed by a man he called friend he's been abandoned by every one of his disciples he's alone in the hands of the brood enforcers who come from a corrupt priesthood in Jerusalem. So those are the windows of history that God is calling us to look through so that we just see what happened. He wants us to see what happened to Jesus and how Jesus responded.
But what about the pictures? Remember we said there's a window and there's a picture. What is the picture that Matthew wants us to see? Well, first, the first picture, Matthew wants us to see two kinds of weakness and two kinds of strength. Two kinds of weakness and two kinds of strength. Peter, representing all the disciples, says he'll never fall away and deny his association with Jesus. He even proves his boldness by attacking the servant of the high priest. But his action is more bluster than a show of strength. The disciples were totally outmatched. This was not even a strategic attack. But as Jesus accepts the arrest warrant and gives himself to the crowd, the disciples turn and abandon their Lord to the hands of violent men. So they look bold, but their strength left them. Now, compare that to Jesus. Jesus, as he grovels on the ground before his Father, asking for some alternative to the path before him, looks very weak. He admits that he is so full of grief and distress that he feels like he's dying. All he can do is pray. But once he has his answer from his Father, he proves to be strong enough to give himself over to these secret police, even giving directions for his arrest. The disciples saw strength in their human ability, but in the time of testing, they proved to be weak. Jesus saw weakness in his human ability, but by drawing on his Father in prayer, he proved to be very strong. Two kinds of strength, two kinds of weakness. That's a picture Matthew wants us to see. Second picture. It's very clear from the way this is laid out that God is in control of this situation. You have to notice it looks like utter catastrophe. Jesus not only arrested by men who will bring him to people who have the authority to lead to his death, but his disciples all abandon him. But we see that God sent Jesus to die. We see that God foretold Jesus' death in the prophets. We see Jesus willingly lay down his life and in it all, we see that evil men and the devil, the evil one, are not in control. Jesus is in control. He was in control then. He is in control now. So even if it looks like everything's fallen apart, God is at work. And he is working these horrible, sinful, cowardly circumstances for his glory and for our good. Third picture, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus enters his darkest hour utterly alone. God allowed Jesus to be stripped of all earthly 
and heavenly power in a sense. But he's stripped of all earthly support. That's the point I want to make. His friends and only physical protectors left him so that he had to fend for himself. There was no band of commandos over the hill waiting for the order to rescue him. He had no lawyer to represent him in court. Even his father was silent as he made his request for an alternative to his death. It, I, I don't think there's ever been written Shakespeare is nothing compared to this. This is the tragedy of tragedies. The perfect son of God who has lived this beautiful, good, righteous life has been unjustly arrested, betrayed by a close friend, and abandoned by all those around him. This is the picture that Matthew wants us to see. You could summarize the burden of this text by saying this. Jesus was faithful to do God's will because he entrusted himself to his Father through prayer. Let me say that again. Get that fixed in your mind. Jesus was faithful to do God's will because he entrusted himself to his Father through prayer. Matthew wants us to see Jesus. The betrayal is backdrop to seeing Jesus. The abandonment of the disciples is backdrop so that we will see Jesus. Matthew wants us to see the Son of God in weakness, dependence, prayer, and strength. Isn't that amazing? What a story. So we've looked through the window and we've looked at the picture that Matthew is painting. Now we're ready to look in the mirror. Look in the mirror that James describes. And so I think this text calls all of us to ask ourselves these questions. Do I depend on my Father in heaven so that I can do His will? Am I depending on Him to empower me to obey and follow? Or is my discipleship a matter of my own performance and strength? How many times in life have I said, I got this, not a big deal. Up to me, done. Well, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I can never say, I got this. I can only say, oh God, help me. Another question. Do I entrust myself in all my duties to God my Father in prayer? Everything I do, is, is there a breath of prayer behind it? You know, I look around this room and I see a room filled with very talented people. Many of you are highly skilled in the work you do. Whether it's work at home or in an 
office space or some other context? Who do you depend on for the ability to do your work? Or do you think, I got this? Are you watching? So when Jesus said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, that, that was for more than just the disciples in that moment. That's for us. So we can't watch Jesus in the garden as he's praying. We can watch him in the text of Scripture and we can feel the burden of the text there. But then there is a call. Are we watching Jesus as we face our temptation? Are we paying attention to what's going on around us? so that we don't enter into temptation. This life is not easy, and we are not strong. So we must watch and pray for God's will to be done, and that we not be led into temptation, but delivered from evil. Another question. Do my prayers reflect my dependence on God? Does my lack of prayer reflect my confidence in my own abilities independent of God? Am I seeking strength like Jesus or like Peter? Those are things to think about. So isn't it amazing how these three brief stories open up a whole world, not only onto what happened to Jesus back then, not only to a picture of Jesus as in control and sovereign, as strong in God and weak in himself, but, and, and, and of God clearly in control of all things, but it, it opens up our own lives to think about how do we live? Church, what we see of Jesus in this passage should draw us to watch and pray. If you're so busy, you cannot stop to watch and to pray. You're too busy. Your attention is distracted. We are called to pay attention. What we see of the disciples' self-confidence should sober us and draw us to watch and pray. And so the call of the text on us is to follow Jesus in his call to watch with him, to watch for what he's doing, to watch for temptations that may be at hand, and then to entrust our hearts and our minds to our Father in heaven in prayer. It's in this kind of weakness that we find the strength to follow the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we see you in that garden. We see you on your face asking the Father for an alternative to your death. We see you hearing your father say, my will is that you die. We see you standing up resolved and then even leading your betrayer in this horrible thing. 
Help us to see, Lord, that you're in control of all things. Help us to see that our greatest strength is in our weakness and our dependence upon you reflected in our prayers. Help us to trust you that you're in control even of a chaotic situation like that that took place in Gethsemane. Give us your kind of strength. Protect us from human boasting so that we can live lives full of trust, full of joy, walking whatever path you have laid out for each of us. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.